0: You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Good morning, Grace DC. Glenn Hoberg here, one of the pastors in our network, and glad to be with you this Sunday morning. A few days after this service airs the anticipated documentary on the black church will debut and as i was reading about it and just um, learning a little bit about it there were a few comments that just stuck out to me Uh, one was everything in the world tried to kill us but we're still here and another The church was our balm in Gilead, place where our people made a way out of nowhere, where our souls could look back and wonder how we got over. Surely one of the supernatural marvels of the black church is how in the face of a culture of death, it was a witness of life. And in this way, it resembled its founder, the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ, and it's this theme that's present in our passage today in Mark as we continue to study what it means to follow Jesus Christ, and we see it in Jesus's interaction with uh, the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are not so much a card-carrying club as they are a school of thought, a perspective, a worldview. And uh, there's not much that we know about them. Most of what we have comes from the New Testament, although we have some from the historian Josephus. And what we learn are a few key things. One, that uh, the Sadducees were all about the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch or the Law of Moses. Their lives centered around the temple. And one of their primary beliefs was that there was no afterlife, no resurrection from the dead. Instead, they invested their hope in living through their children and living by their reputation. Their, their hope was the best you can uh, go for is when you die, you've left children and you've left a good reputation. And there you see some similarities with our day and traditional cultures today that put so much emphasis on family or in contemporary cultures that uh, place so much upon achievement and the legacy that I leave. Now, in contrast to this, uh, the Christian faith is um, a faith that is centered on life. And teaches that the resurrection, the fact of the resurrection, changes everything about the way we think of life. When Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, conquered death, when he uh, broke through death and rose from the grave, and then he made a way through death for those of us that follow him, he then gave us a vision for life and a power for life. So as Jesus now uh, submits to the Sadducees' questions, which are one part sincere, but the other part just trying to give him a mind teaser to trick him, he takes it as a teaching opportunity that he might teach us, teach them and us, about this vision for life and the power for life. So let's look at those two things together. First of all, a vision for life. On August 29th, 1966, uh, the great supergroup The Beatles stopped touring and they did this for a few reasons. One, they were exhausted, uh, they wanted to spend more time in the studio, but it was also because of the reaction of their fans. You see, uh, they would get five seconds into their songs and uh, literally the hysteria and the yelling would just drown out the music. No one could really hear what they were doing, and uh, many times they couldn't even hear themselves. More so when they tried to evolve the songwriters and play things that were more singer-songwriter, the fans didn't like it. Well, there's a parallel here with the Sadducees. Uh, they loved to shout. They were big fans of the five books of Moses. So much so that they drowned out the rest of the Old Testament scripture. They didn't like the evolution of where the artist, God, was taking the story and taking the song. And so uh, they were prone to error. That was the result. You know, it would be like if you had a, a fan of the Beatles who was familiar with their entire catalog, speaking to one that only focused on the early period. And the one that knows the catalog says, you know, don't you just love it when George Harrison plays the tempura or he plays the sitar? And the early Beatles fan would go, what are you talking about? George Harrison doesn't play those instruments. Well, it's because they never delved deep, alo- deep enough into the, into the catalog to know that. The Sadducees reject the resurrection from the dead in part because of that reason. They stop learning. They stop going forward in the word of God. But their error was more than just oversight. It was also resistance. We know this because one of the other beliefs they had was no angels, didn't buy angels. But there you find in the Pentateuch, the presence of many angels. So it wasn't just a matter of information. It was a matter of rejecting things that they saw And in this, there are a couple things that we learn about the Sadducees, but more so lessons for you and I. Uh, The first is, for the Sadducees, their own reason and opinion was really their ultimate authority. In a sense, they lived by, uh, I only believe what I can understand and what I agree with. I only believe what I understand and I agree with. Um, in the same spirit, we find our day, right? Whether it be those inside the church, but even those, or rather those outside the church, but also those inside the church, where we might say, you know, I I really don't understand or agree with uh, the idea of supernatural miracles, or the idea of heaven, or the Bible's teaching on sexuality, or the Bible's teaching on sin, or the Bible's teaching on judgment. Therefore, I exit out. I edit it out of my belief system. And when we do that, we need to recognize that ultimately our reason is our authority. But it raises the question, what about reason? Well, maybe we can put it this way. Faith doesn't ask you to leave reason outside the courtroom of truth, but it does ask you to get out of the judge's seat. We bring our reason in, but we also understand none of us are in the position to be ultimate judges of what is true and right. This is why God has revealed himself to us. So the second thing is that the Sadducees treated the scripture like a playlist of their favorites. Um, you know, they they would again, uh, they love the hits of Moses. They love to go into those parts of the scripture, but they didn't go any further. Uh, when I was coming up in the formative days of listening uh, to music in my life, it was the day of the LP, the album. And on one hand, it was a bit of a pain because if you just wanted to hit, listen to certain hits, you, know, you had to get up off your bed or get up out of the seat, move over and move the needle to the next song. But this also had uh, a good effect or rather a good result because oftentimes when you were too lazy to do that you would just listen straight through the album and you would find your way into what we call deep cuts right these songs that take a little bit longer to like a little bit longer to understand but many times end up being your favorites well the, fair, uh, the sadducees were lacking the deep cuts of Scripture. Jesus actually tries to give them a bit of that view when he takes them to the Pentateuch and says even when God was uh referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers of the faith, and he says that he is the God of the living, it's evidence that they're still alive. But again, this was as far as Jesus could go because this was all they could embrace. Uh, how about you? Are you mostly familiar with the hits, or have you moved into deeper study? Have there been certain uh, aspects of the Christian faith that uh, you just sort of embrace and say that's all I need to know and don't go further? Or if you're someone that's a professing Christian, uh, is it that you just sort of go back to the same passages in the same books? And so you find yourself creating, in effect, just a playlist that you uh, pay attention to. And I want to invite you to uh, go further. If you're someone that's looking into the Christian faith and maybe you're just starting by listening to these sermons, which commend you for, uh, you may want to start reading the Bible. In fact, not just reading it by yourself, but reading with someone who actually has some knowledge of it. Or if you, again, you are a Christian in the church, Maybe pick a, a book in the Bible and go deep on it, even, you know, this winter time. So we find this uh, in the life and a- in the life of the Sadducees. And the real tragedy isn't that the Sadducees would lose in Bible trivia. They would lose life. They didn't see the Lord of life in the word they weren't reading to find life. In a sense, they were reading just to do life, to win life. You know, in their view of life, it was really about earthly blessings and family and reputation. And in those things, you really don't need a redeemer. You really don't need a savior. But when we begin to understand that the Bible, the word of God is living and active, What happens is it begins to expose us things like understanding our own sin and that the wages of sin are death and that God sent his very own son to die that death for us so that we might find life, that we might be delivered from judgment. Theologian John Calvin once said, uh, the scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them Whoever turns aside from this object, even though he wears himself out all his life in learning, he will never reach the knowledge of the truth. Thirdly, the Sadducees made this life, small l, the only life, capital L. Uh, and here again, we see ourselves reflected as modern people. When you don't believe there is more. To this life, you will need more and more from this life. When you don't believe that there is a heaven after this life, this life will have to be heaven for you. And what you end up doing is loading heaven, heaven-size expectations on the things of this life, and they eventually break. For the Sadducees, those expectations would about their kids and their family and again, the reputation that they needed to have, they were so desperate for those things, they would contribute to the death of Jesus, of killing Jesus. That's how desperate they were for small L life, an earthly life. And maybe for us, it's not that. Maybe for you, it's, uh, I must find life through my career, or I must find life through my marriage and my kids, or I have to find life through um, my advocacy, what I do for people. I have to find life through my body image or my health, whatever it would be. Still, it's this belief that this is all I have, and I must have it now, because there is nothing beyond that. And there's a way that we can begin to move out of this, and this is where the scripture helps us. One is we begin to understand uh, the, the point of earthly blessings. Um, C.S. Lewis famously said that the things we love and enjoy, the books, the music, uh, the food we enjoy in life, they are the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. What he's saying there is that earthly blessings are ultimately a sign pointing somewhere else or an appetizer. Maybe you've had the experience before where you go to some sort of reception event and maybe you're not sure uh, if there's going to be a meal afterward. So when the appetizers come, you feel like, man, I, I need to stuff myself with these appetizers. And you keep a, an eye on the tray and you think, hey, is there going to be enough for me? Why is that guy taking so many, right? It's this idea that uh, I think this is all there is. Well, the same thing is true for this life. Uh, if you and I feel like earthly blessings are all we have, we will gorge on them and we will clutch and become very selfish about them. I need to have it. But another thing we come to see in the scripture is understanding not only uh, earthly blessing, the point of earthly blessing, but understanding the goal of happiness. Now, if there's anything that defines modern America, it is the uh, drive and idolatry of happiness that people must be happy. Uh, in fact, it's become almost like a law, right? A matter of justice that people are able to be happy in their lives. Well, uh, St. Augustine, who was a wise man a long time ago, says, you may wish to be happy here when complete happiness doesn't exist here. Happiness is a real thing, good and great, But it has its proper region or space. Christ came from that region of happiness, heaven, and not even he could find it here on earth. If the Son of God found himself uh, longing for heaven, longing that his people would be with him, with the Father and the Spirit longing for the renewal of the earth. And when we're talking about heaven, we're not talking about floating up in clouds. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth, where life as it is now will be everything it should have been, all the things that we enjoy, all the things we do and make us feel alive. Even the Son of God understood the limitations of happiness here. My friends, how many rich, powerful, beautiful, unhappy people do we need to see before we believe that, before we stop pining for this place to be, ultimately that, because God has created you and I with a heaven sized appetite for happiness. And so a couple things before we move to the next point on how we can begin to uh, practice that vision of life in a way where we don't find ourselves making the error of the Sadducees. Uh, one is gratitude, but not just gratitude, gratitude to God. I was reading an article recently, I think on well-being and health, and one of the suggestions was have a gratitude journal. And I think, you know, that's a great uh, step in the right direction. But, you know gratitude isn't just cast into thin air. You know, when when you're grateful, you're grateful to someone ultimately, right? And so if our gratitude doesn't make its way to God, it's really never going to reach its destination. In the scripture, as you and I are grateful for what God gives us, it gives us a taste of what's coming. But second of all, Uh, joy and longing or anticipation. Discovering the joy of longing and anticipation. Again, Augustine said, by longing, we cast our hope as an anchor on the shore of heaven. Now, it seems strange because, you know, we can often think, well, longing, and then, you know, it's just uncomfortable. It's more of an ache than anticipation. Well, sometimes it is an ache. But it also can be something that gives us a taste of what's to come. Think of it this way. You know, it's, it's that experience when you put a vacation or a trip or an event you're excited about on the calendar. Even though you're three months away and it's raining and gray and freezing rain or whatever it is, you look at that and you can already, in a sense, be there. You can already have a taste of it. Or young folks, maybe you think about your birthday or Christmas. Even though you're a couple days away from it, and the presents haven't arrived yet, when you just think about it, it makes you happy because you know what's coming. Well, you and I need to have the same vision for life. As God has set forth, as we do that, we'll find ourselves actually tasting what we're longing for. But the second point, that vision of life really takes us to the power of life that God bestows now, I'd mentioned that the Sadducees bring this question to Jesus in part because they're just trying to trick him and give him a hard time, but also their lives were about marriage and kids. So you can imagine they're pretty interested in this topic. And Jesus' answer must have shocked them. Um, the, the, the passage we have in Luke gives us a little bit more. Let me read that to you. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So in summary, what Jesus is saying there is that the biblical institution of marriage, the biblical vision of marriage, which is a marriage covenant between one man and one woman, is a temporary and earthly institute. Why is that? Well, he says a couple things here. One, as God's children, we will be in heaven immortal, like the angels, he says, not able to die. And so that means there's not going to be a need for procreation, there's not going to be a need for starting more and more families. Now, modern people hear that and we think that's kind of weird because we tend to see kids mostly as self-fulfillment. But there's really bigger factors, uh, especially, you know, uh, people that care about nations and demographics pay attention to this. Because as a birth rate falls of a nation, there's all sorts of trouble ahead of them. Uh, first of all, you, you, you find your population of people, of working folk to retire folk, gets out of whack. Your social safety nets get out of whack. You find that the economy is impacted, right? There's a lot that's important about new generations for the earth and for us to continue. But on the new heavens and the earth, as people won't die, that won't be a problem. So Jesus says that. But second of all, he also says, as the angel's relational needs are fully satisfied as they are in the presence of their Creator and Redeemer, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and as they're in the presence of their fellow angels, they enjoy a perfect intimacy. Now, whenever I do a wedding, I make the point that marriage is an analog, it's an earthly reflection of a greater marriage between God and his people. The Bible often talks this way, right? It talks about uh, basically everything ending up in a big wedding between the groom, Jesus Christ, and his people, the bride. It's an earthly reflection of the deep intimacy that we are purposed to have between God, but also God and his people and his family. And because that intimacy is going to be a for-sure there won't be a need for marriage to produce that. I mean, you you could take the greatest, most intimate, happiest marriage on the planet earth right now, and it won't hold a candle to the relationships across the board between the sons and daughters of God with one another and God himself. This is what Jesus is saying here. Now, It may be you have the reaction if you're in marriage and you're enjoying your marriage. It makes you feel discouraged. Now, bear in mind, Jesus isn't saying that you won't continue to have intimacy with that person you were married with on the new heavens and new earth. You will. In fact, it will only grow. Or maybe you're single and you think, this is great, Glenn. You know, Valentine's Day was a bust. And now you're going to tell me eternity will be a bust. But again, again, we have to understand what Jesus is saying about power. And this is what would confound the Sanhedrin. They could not imagine a life without marriage and kids. In many ways, like you and I could not married, or rather imagine a life where I didn't have a spouse and be happy. And this is where the power of God comes in. That the power of God is, in, is able to do more than we can ask or even imagine that God is able to take uh, and provide for us the most intimate, enjoyable relationships on the new heavens and the earth. He's able to establish deep friendships, close friendships, lasting friendships in a way that we just can't imagine, only by faith. And this offers us two things. First of all, consolation. No one will be in heaven with their, you know, hand on their chin, regretting that they didn't get to be married or didn't have a better marriage on earth. That won't be a possibility. We hear in Isaiah, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. With everlasting love I will have compassion on you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not Depart from you. The cross of Christ is the ultimate demonstration of that love. What sort of passion does Jesus have, the Father have, the Spirit have, that you would know intimacy, willing to die for? Do you see Him sacrificing Himself to save you? Do you see Him dying to give you life? Do you see Him conquering sin? so that you might know eternal, abundant forgiveness in life? Do you see him rising, that you might rise into the relationships that you long for? This is the power of God. But also, going back to anticipation, um, God means for you and I, by faith, to set our minds on the Father of love, the Son of Love, and the Spirit of Divine Love. Now, those of you at Grace Downtown have heard me a couple times refer to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Heaven is a World of Love. And uh, th- there really are a few passages I know, examples that labor in faith to give us a picture of this. And, you know, it's old-timey language, uh, a couple hundred years ago. But it- it's so worth us hearing and hearing again and getting into our breast and our mind. So you can follow along with me on the screen as I read this. Love on earth is a spring of sweetness, but in heaven it shall become a stream, a river, an ocean. All shall stand about the God of glory, who's the great fountain of love, opening, as it were, their very souls to be filled with those effusions of love that are poured forth from his fullness. Just as the flowers on the earth in the bright and joyous days of spring open their bosoms to the sun, to be filled with his light and warmth, and to flourish in beauty and fragrancy under his cheering rays, every saint in heaven is as a flower in that garden of God, and holy love is the fragrance and sweet odor Every soul there is as a note in some concert of delightful music, and all join in the most rapturous praising of God and the Lamb forever, pouring back their love to the great fountain of love, and thus they will love and reign in love, such as eye hath not seen, nor ear has heard. My friends, this is what you were made for. This is what God has purposed everyone who embraces his son of love, Christ. No earthly life could ever grant us that vision. Only the power of God can accomplish that. But we're not just left stranded this side of heaven without any experience of it. Because Christ has established the church that we might get a regular taste, regular warmth from this reality that's coming down the road. And we're told in the scripture that he he dwells in the church with his fullness. And by that power, he enables us to fulfill the many, many commandments of love. Love one another as I have loved you. Where we love each other with the degree and intensity that Jesus has loved us. If God so loved us, so we should love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Above all, keep fervent love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. It's that power that we need to ask God for. It's the power that he means to give. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. If all our theology and all our advocacy and all our serving doesn't end there. In praise to the God of love and loving one another and loving our neighbor and loving our city, we will have fallen short. But this is the beauty of it. I can tell you, you know, my many, many years in the church, decades in the church, I witness and testify that he does this. The power of this life does exist in the church. Spouses in bad marriages... Find a new family. Children from broken families. Find spiritual fathers and mothers. Those that are oppressed in the culture. Find a haven of life. Find a place where they're valued. Those on the margins. Find themselves adopted in love. This is what the Lord means for us to taste. And then so then we find ourselves hearing the words of Jesus, as he talks about his resurrection and, and uh, you know, shines upon you and I with the light of a vision of life, more so we feel the power that we can begin to grasp it now because we'll hold on to it forever and ever. Would you pray with me?